As we continue here our series out of Ecclesiastes, from abated to abiding. So this is where we are, beginning at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So what I've read to you from Philippians, or from 1 John chapter 2 and what I've read to you from Ecclesiastes, it all is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. It is our prayer, O Lord, that we would be helped by Ecclesiastes. That things that we have gotten wrong and mindsets and attitudes that are warped would be remedied. O cause your spirit who inspired this book to come and tune our hearts and tune our minds to the wisdom that comes from above. So that we may move from abated to abiding through Jesus Christ our Lord and your Son. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. Yes, there really are, I think, seven points. My friends, I have found over the years that people normally equate, equate personal worth, self-actualization, and having arrived at some sense of full potential, they've equated those things with power, prestige, and possessions. But Solomon exposes the emptiness of power, prestige, and possessions for the purpose of helping his son to whom he is writing this and us make wise choices. And the first place the preacher, Solomon, dives is into dealing with justice. That's chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And notice that here in verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the preacher is right back to searching about uh, uh, the whole concept of searching for meaning and value in the executive office, in the legislative halls, in the courts of justice under the sun. And it still looks bleak and bleary. He started it in chapter 3, verse 16. That's how he began this whole section. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked and so forth. He's still on that theme of looking for meaning and value in that context. And notice that might makes right rains. It rains in almost every country on terra firma, on this firm earth now, even amongst the most advanced. It, it rains in almost every country or every country throughout every millennium. Might makes right. In fact, that's kind of what he's driving at there in verse 2 when he says, on the side of their oppressors there was power. Right? Might makes right. That's what most of the world is fueled with. And so the subtle, subtle or brazen actions of the oppressor often grinds the lives of the oppressed. And more, more often than not, there is just little recourse to stop the oppression. 
Right? There's very little recourse. No matter what country you're in, we can vote and everything, but there's really very little recourse to often stop oppression. And in most of the world, there is no way to stop it. Which leads the preacher then to observe with nearly nihilistic exasperation, nihilism, the sense of everything is nothing, right? Nihilistic exasperation, verse 3, but better than both, better than the one who is who is alive, who's being oppressed, or the one who was being oppressed and is now dead, better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. My friends, that sentiment, verse 3, is what many parents have thought who lived in places where their own homes were ravaged with evil and their children were crushed mercilessly by the powerful. And they cried out, why did I even bring them into this world? It's the same sentiment. And interesting enough, as a monarch, Solomon's a king, as a monarch, in some way, Solomon senses that he's preaching to himself as much as he is challenging his son, that this oppression shows up even in his own reign. He will come back to this again and again, which is why he will end Ecclesiastes in the two verses where he ends it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's why he's going to end up there. And so dealing with justice, Then Solomon turns his gaze to the corridors of the company in verses 4 through 6, where many are driven by envy or indolence. So Ecclesiastes 4, beginning at verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The The fool folds his hands and he eats his own flesh. Better! is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. I have to tell you that when I read verses 4 through 6, I see Dilbert comic strips. <laughs> I'm just telling you, right? With Wally over there who does nothing, right? And then you got Tina who's just, she's type A. And then you got the pointy-haired manager and all that stuff. It's just all right there, verses 4 through 6. My friends, people work. They work from various motivations. Many work um, a motivation that grows out of envy, verse 4. That is, I want to have what you have, and I really don't want you to have it, because I want to have it, and so I'm going to do the better thing. I'm going to do more work. I'm going to get more education, more training, so I can have it, right? That's a sense of envy, right? And that fuels many. Others, notice, have no motivation, verse 4. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. And guess what? You will work with both of them. And sometimes it may drive you either to furious frustration or to droopy dejection. But go neither way. That's Solomon's aim here. Go neither way. Instead, find satisfaction. Find satisfaction where others see only valuelessness and worthlessness. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. The point is don't fall off 
into the either ditch. And there will be lots of wooing to do so. There will be lots of enticing. There will be lots of peer pressure. There will be lots of bonuses. There will be lots of performance reports to get you to do just that. Fall off into this ditch or that ditch. I remember when I was in the Air Force working on fighter jets. And we were in, I won't tell you the state or wherever, so that way I don't impute anyone. So we were working very, very hard on fighter jets. We were very used to efficiency. I mean, it was about getting the job done, and we were sold on getting the job done. Well, some of the guys had extra time in the evening, so they went to an international airport to go do off work, you know, to go do after hours work to make some extra money. They got there, and within a week, they were surrounded by the employees there who were all part of a certain group, I won't say any more than that, who told them, if you keep on being efficient, we will beat the snot out of you because you're working us out of a job. Oh, how about that? You run across it all over the place, and that's the point. Instead, be content, Solomon says, even if it's with less. What's interesting is that that concept shows up repeatedly in the New Testament. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Or Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. There's that verse, verse 13, which most people have memorized and most people misuse horribly. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not about you winning the Super Bowl. That's not about you getting a pay raise. It's in the context of Paul saying, in whatever condition and state I'm in, I have learned to be content. If I have a lot, praise the Lord. If I have nothing, praise the Lord. How did I get that strength? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's where Solomon is, is looking here and telling his son. And so after dealing with envy and indolence, Solomon changes now to a narrower focus to get down to the individual and dangerous lone rangerism. I just made up that word, I think, lone rangerism. And it's verses 7 through 12, so follow along. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappiness and an and, and unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a great a good reward for their toil for if they fall one will lift up his fellow but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no has not another to lift him up again if two lie together they keep warm but how can one keep warm alone and though a man might prevail against one who is alone two will withstand him a threefold a threefold cord is not quickly broken The preacher here delves into rugged individualism as the place where we seek worth and consequence and value. And he's gazing into the life of the one who has, who was his own man in verse 7 and 8. 
His own man under the sun. And it's not pretty. Now, at first, verse 7 and 8 sounds like maybe he was widowed and maybe he, uh, his children all died because now he finds himself at the end of life without anyone with him. But that's not the case because of the next verses, 9 through 12, tell you that this was a choice he made. He chose to be alone so he could have it all for himself and spend it all for himself. He was the, this is the true, true epitome of Lone Rangerism. That's who he's, driving, who he's pointing at here. In fact, verses 7 and 8 sounds very much like the Beatles. Yes, the Beatles are going to show up to Heritage. Whoop, whoop. The Beatles nowhere man. He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land making all his nowhere plans for nobody. But from basic observation, everyone really already knows that lone rangerism doesn't really work. That's verses 9 through 12. That's all those three pictures in verses 9 through 12 about how we need others and we need one another. I just ran across this African proverb recently, and it goes like this. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That's what he's driving at, pointing at here. That's his point. My friends, many evaluators, even in our day, really in our day, are starting to take note regarding suicidal actions in our country and how rugged individualism and self-reliance most often are part of the culprit. The rugged individualism, the self-reliance that becomes its own thing and its own, takes on its own life begins to lead to isolation. And when this loneliness begins to collapse in on people, they frequently move into what are now being called deaths of despair. Deaths of despair. Most of the mass shootings and murders you've been seeing just in the last 20 years, most of them, over 60% of them, are deaths of despair. But of all the generational groups that are presently living, the few remaining great generation, the boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, and whoever else is coming up, of all the generational groups presently living, it appears that those who were born between 1981 and 1996, the millennials, have been most heavily impacted with deaths of of despair. They have more suicides than all of the other generations. And why is that? Because we have been promoting rugged individualism and independence and isolationism amongst people for so long. The chicken has finally come home to lay her eggs. Wendell Berry one time said in 1983, he said there's a two-fold epidemic that is raging in the world right now. This is 1983. It's the disintegration of communities and disintegration of persons. The two go together. And so the next time you want to call a millennial a snowflake, stop a moment. Not only is that your child or your grandchild, but they're dealing with a lot of baggage that we threw upon them. I'm a boomer, I can say this. And it's coming home to roost. 
Maybe you should care about them. Maybe what you should do is actually become their friend. So, dear friends, that's the struggle there, and that's the danger that Lone Ranger is. And Solomon is saying, no, let's not do that. That's not where we need to go. And we need to be thinking as a congregation about, about that aspect of how we need one another. We're a commuter church, right? You know what a commuter church is? Right? It's, a, it's an hour commitment just to come to church and go home. Just the trip. It's about an hour commitment. 30 minutes one way and 30 minutes the other, unless you live in Houston. And then all bets are off. Right? That's a commuter church. We're a commuter church. We're not a community outside of this. Right? You don't live in close to your church, right? So we've got to be thinking about ways that we can be the band of brothers. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. How we can be knit together and grow even closer together. We have to be about rebuilding and building community. And there it is in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. That's what he's emphasizing there. Turning our backs on that rugged individualism and isolation and growing together. So then from here, the preacher turns the corner and he begins to head back up into the palace, a place of distinct discontent. And that's verses 13 through uh, the end of the chapter. And it's a little confusing, so just stick with me as I read this. Here we go, starting chapter 4, verse 13. Better was a poor, wise youth than an old, foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he, the young youth, he went from prison to the throne, though, it, uh, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was, who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. That last few verses of chapter 4 is a bit cryptic, somewhat confounding. The question you ask as you're reading it is, is it possible that Solomon is being something kind of a fictitiously autobiographical? And I think he is, and so let me take a stab at these verses. Solomon is exposing that he is the, he is the old foolish king who no longer knows how to take advice. He's the proverbial old man with the cane in his hand shouting at the kids walking on his yard, Get off my lawn! Right? That's Solomon. And he's, being, he's comparing himself to this fictional youth. Even this, let's just say the worst scenario possible, this youth who went from prison to princedom. Princedom, P-R-I-N-C-E-D-O-N. He went from poverty to power. And in that context, and in that contrast, the old king is the real loser. But here's the, here's the sour part of it all. In the end, death comes to both of them, and no one will remember either of them. <laughs> Trying to find meaning, even in the power of being a king. So under the sun, this is all vanity and striving after the wind. Well, up to this point, Solomon is doing, what Solomon is doing up to this point is he is taking our noses and he's shoving our noses in the mess of trying to value, to find value and meaning under the sun, whether it's from the courts, to the company, to 
the individualism to the personal, all done under the sun, it ends up blowing away like dust and ashes on a windy Oklahoma day. But Solomon is not finished with us, for there's more. And this brings then Solomon to church, to the church doors, to peek inside. It's chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Dealing lightly with the outsides of holy things, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. It's a little bit of a surprising twist. The preacher suddenly ends up in church. That was a play there. The preacher ends up in church, right? The preacher suddenly ends up in church and he gives us another better than assertion. You see, the fool rushes in where angels fear to tread. Brash, blustering, babbling, pious, blather. The fool, thinking that he can create his own destiny, is quick to demand and command from God. Believing that he can concoct his own successes. And so the fool is hasty to strike a deal with God. Vows. And Solomon says repeatedly in verse 1 and verse 7, No, that's the way of evil. No, that's the way of vanity. Better instead to come and hear God's commands and God's demands. And to be thoughtful about the promises made to him. And so then in verse 7 comes the prime directive for you Star Trek fans. It's starting to show up more and more on the radar, and it's becoming clear as day. It's that last part of verse 7, God is the one you must fear. I, I really appreciate verse 7 There's so many times I wish that maybe we put those on our phones and on our computer screens. But when dreams increase, a word become many, there is vanity. And I would encourage you to put on your screen before you watch Fox News or MSNBC or CNN. Because all of those are promoting and fostering and fueling your fears and worries. Far better, Solomon says, to fear God. God himself said it in Isaiah 8. Do not fear what your community fears. Do not call conspiracy what your community calls conspiracy. Let me be your fear. Let me be your dread. That's how you weather that storm. Notice that's where Solomon ends up here. And so we're to not deal lightly with the outsides of holy things. Let God be our fear. Let us be genuine with Him. 
And finally, then the preacher, in a sort of wrap-up, he's not at the end yet, but a sort of wrap-up, examines the disappointment with power and possessions in its verses 8 through 17. So follow along here, chapter 5, verses 8 through 17. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor, he's back to justice and oppression here. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches are, were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, and he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall, gain, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. The disappointment with power and possessions. There's really kind of two parts to this section. Verses 8 and 9 are all about twisted justice and organizational tangledness. We're right back to it again. And notice what Solomon says there, especially in verse 8. Don't be disappointed. That's what he says. Verse 8, he says, do not be amazed at the matter. Now, I'm just going to say, honestly, I am always amazed that Christians are amazed at the matter. Right? I mean, we were dealing with First and Second Peter, and they talk about, they're telling us up front, so there are times we will suffer, and there are times there will be false teachers, and I see Christians always amazed, shocked, surprised. But Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, has told us over and over and over and over and over again, sin is real. And so we're not to be surprised because we've been apprised. Don't be surprised that there's injustice in the judicial system and the governmental system. And when he gets to verse 9, he says, you know, smart king is going to actually take care of his land, but not most rulers are necessarily smart. He just moves on from there. But that's that about that twisted justice and organizational tangledness. You may be disappointed, but do not be amazed at the matter. But then starting in verse 10 to verse 17, who owns whom? Verse 10 through 17, who owns whom? There are, there are two scenarios there, but both of them end in the same muddle. I won't pull them apart. You can see it there. But no matter how many toys, how many trinkets, how many trifles one collects and one hoards, there will always be an uncertainty about the future. There will always be an uncertainty about the future. But there will always be a certainty of death. We were wrong when we told everybody. There's two things you can count on in life. Taxes and death, right? 
No, you may not be able to even count on taxes, because that's all about government and humans and all this other stuff. But there is one thing you can count on that is certain. We will die. The future is uncertain. I love the fact when I read verse th uh, 14, by the way, when I read verse 14, I hear Ulysses S. Grant. Just sorry, I had, I had to tell you this. There in verse 14, those riches were lost in a bad venture. He's a father of a son, but he, was no, he has nothing in his hand. Ulysses S. Grant was famous for his bad business dealings. He, tried, he was an entrepreneur at heart, and he was always investing and always trying to do the next best thing. He looked like my dad, actually. That's how my dad used to always do things, right? Always wanted to be an independent businessman. He would always do these deals, and he would always lose in the end. Right? And then after the Civil War, and after he'd become president, and after he'd retired from being president, he got into a big business venture with his son and some other guy, and they invested everything they had. Everything. Lo and behold, the friend of his son and himself that had got the venture going was a crook. Built him for everything. And he says in his personal memoirs, I had nothing left but what little cash was in my pocket and my wife's purse, and that was it. And then he comes to find out he has throat cancer, and at that time, throat cancer is mortal. That's why he wrote his personal memoir, so hoping that Mark Twain, that's the one who actually published his work, would sell it and help him after he died to take care of his family. Right? Verse 14 just sounds like Ulysses S. Grant. It's really great. But my friends, power and possessions under the sun only leave you, leave you high and dry and down and out. In essence, that's the point that John is driving at or speaking of in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so after all of this meandering through the passageways of power, prestige, and possessions under the sun... And after exposing the emptiness of looking for meaning and value in these, where does Solomon go? He goes to verses 18 through 20. And it's a surprise. Thank God for joy. That's where he goes. Look at verses 18 through 20. Let me read it. Behold, I have, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which... One toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Like a Johnny One Note, Solomon once again brings us to lift up our eyes to the one who gives us all things richly to enjoy. That's when we enter vanity, is that we forget who gave us the gift. I'm a self-made man. No, you're not. I got this wealth. No, you didn't. 
I got that degree. No, you didn't. It's the gift of God. And that's how you live. And it lifts your heart in the midst of all the vanity, in the midst of all the dust and the temporariness. It lifts your heart because you become then the Eucharistic, the thanksgiving people. That's what he's looking at here. And the way to have this satisfaction, no matter what our condition is, the way to have this satisfaction is to find our satisfaction in God for his own sake. So we're back to St. Augustine. You're going to hear this quotation probably through this whole series. There's actually two you will hear over and over again. But in book 10 of his Confessions, chapter 22, in a prayer he says, There is a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love you for your own sake, whose joy you yourself are. And this is the happy life, to rejoice to you, of you, for you. This is true joy, and there is no other. Enjoying God, yes, and the things that he's given you, but you always remember you're enjoying him, not things for their own sake. Join him in those gifts. And that's Ecclesiastes 4 and 5. Let me wrap this up or try to land the plane or dock the yacht or whatever you want to use. C.S. Lewis once wrote an article. I made copies of it for you back there. It's back on the credenza. And I would encourage you to take it and read it. He wrote an article about living during the age of atomic bombs. It was written not long after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He was addressing the frights and he was addressing the fears of mutual assured destruction. Do you all remember that far back? I remember being in a basic training in 1979 and part of the propaganda, I mean part of the, <coughs> excuse me, reprogram, whatever it was, part of the education, there you go, that we got in the military was we had to watch this movie on mutual assured destruction. When I left, I was suicidal. It was horrible. There was nothing to live for. He's addressing people, their fright and fear in the midst of mutual assured destruction with the potential end of all humankind. He's addressing how people responded to it and how and the way they should respond, especially how Christians should respond. And he brings the article to a close with these thoughts. Quote, nothing is more likely to destroy a species or a nation than a determination to survive at all costs. He then presents the Christian contrast. Quote, those who care for something else more than civilization are the only people by whom civilization is at all likely to be preserved. Those who want heaven must, must have served earth best. Those who love man less than God do most for man. You're going, what? Okay, I've put it to you this way so often. Becoming so heavenly minded, you're finally some earthly good. He just said it in more wordy fashion, in a far far more artful, artful fashion. 
And that's the, the sentiment that Solomon is aiming at here. How can you do that? How can you love man less than you do God? How can you do more for man because you've actually find God your all in all? How can you actually do that? How can you let go of the fear and the panic and the worry in a world environment like we live right now? In a national situation where we live right now? How can you be the people that actually are able to love God so much you're not so worried about the survival of civilization or even your own country? And I think it's because of the God's own strong promises to us. For example, we read this at the end of that passage before our confession of sin, at the end of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? My problem is that we're all unbelievers at heart. Let's just be honest, right? Yeah, I know God said that, but did he really mean? Yes! I mean, and this is in the context where most of us live, the dealing with money. So let your life be free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Well, how can I do that? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let me say it again. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, and so we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you don't believe the writer of Hebrews, or maybe you've got a question mark there, how about Jesus? Is that okay? Can I quote Jesus? In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus himself says, and he says this tying it to his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. (laughs) Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So, dear friends, to put it simply, lift your eyes up from under the S-U-N sun. Lift your eyes up from underneath the S-U-N sun and see who you are and what you have in the S-O-N sun. What you have in the sun. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we are so thankful, even though it's uncomfortable at times, to read Ecclesiastes and to hear your Spirit-inspired wisdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would, we would live life until the day we die, enjoying you and you being our greatest joy, no matter our conditions. That we would trust you I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
that we would trust you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. That we will trust you all of our live long days. Lord, I pray for any, as we were talking earlier about deaths of despair, I pray for any who may be listening, who may be watching, who will be hearing this in the future. That Lord, if they feel themselves being swallowed up in despair, dear God, in Jesus' name, reach into their lives this very moment and grab them. Pull them up and give them a breath of fresh air. Let them see the light. And surround them with Christians who will be able to walk with them out of the despair. Lord, now we move towards communion. We pray that you would lift our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.